You're listening to the International Continent Society podcast. ICS is the leading international multidisciplinary organization for medical professionals working in the field of incontinence. ICS provides the latest scientific and clinical updates to professionals in the field. So hello, everybody. My name is Shannon Wallace. Um, I'm on the ICS Education Committee, and we are very excited about some of the workshops that are going to be um, happening and presented at Vienna this year. And we are all very excited to finally have an in-person meeting. Um, And so we were very fortunate today to have a couple of the workshop chairs who have joined us to sort of discuss, um, give us a sneak peek at their workshops uh, that are coming up in September. So um, I'm very fortunate to have Dr. Tony Kanai, who's going to talk to us about the workshop that he'll be chairing, um, targeting neurotrophin and nitric oxide signaling to promote recovery and ameliorate neurogenic bladder dysfunction following spinal cord injury, the mechanistic concepts and clinical implications. So I know that's a bit of a mouthful. So Dr. Uh, Kanai, why don't you tell me kind of um, tell us kind of what the where the idea for this workshop came from and sort of what your goals and what uh, attendees can hope to get out of it. Okay. Well, the idea is that we've been working with spinal cord injury for quite some time. But when we've worked with spinal cord injury and looking at lower urinary tract function, it's always been doing complete transection. And that was typically the way it was done because you wanted to l- eliminate any central processes from becoming involved. But as it works out, it's much better if you can improve cord function which will help the processes, you know, in in the bladder as well. And so we started to do contusion models. So we're not transecting these animals. We're hitting them with a device. It's called a contusion device. And the animals are still paraplegic when they wake up from, you know, anesthesia. But the issue is that there can be improvement in their cord function. So what we've done then with this thing is that, and let me just say this, it's a 90-minute workshop, and it focuses on spinal cord injury-induced lower urinary patho, lower urinary tract pathophysiology. And it's moderately advanced, but it's really designed to, for the broad, you know, members of the ICS committee. So it can handle, for its aim for, you know, uh, for urologists, your gynecologists, rehabilitation therapists, nurses, and basic scientists. And I have four, you know, three very good speakers that have joined me. And so in the order that they're going to give their talks, it's Carl Eric Anderson. So Carl will talk about, or Carl Eric will talk about, or discuss current therapeutic options to treat spinal cord injury induced Lutz or low urinary tract dysfunction. And he'll include the basic things like clean intermittent catheterization, anti-muscarinic drugs, uh, sacral neuromodulation, botulinum neurotoxin. Those are the typical things. But then I'm going to follow Carl and what I want to talk, Carl Eric, and then I'm going to talk about some novel approaches using three drugs, not necessarily combination therapy, but given at different time points. So these three new options are uh, two of them are neurotropin receptor signaling molecules or promoters, and the other is a nitric oxide signaling activator. And I guess what I think makes this workshop important, or, or, or let's say special, at least to me, is that one, I mean, everybody knows that spinal cord injury is a very serious uh, pathology, and the patients have, you know, they have a lot of health issues. But I think the important thing here is that, you know, you'll talk to urologists, for example, and I remember talking with Carl Eric, and he said he had one that said that one of the worst things of being paraplegic was the incontinence, and he'd rather, if he had a choice, he'd rather not be able to walk and really take care of the incontinence. So it's an important thing to look at. And, you know, everybody knows that there's 300,000, or there's about 300,000 individuals in the U.S. with spinal cord injury. And the military has different things. I've had DOD grants, and with DOD grants, 
it's not so much confusion. I'll have gunshot wounds and shrapnel wounds. And so that's usually a transection. But in most patients that would come from the U.S., that would be a contusion. And so the model we chose was TAT9 spinal cord uh, contusion. And that's called an upper motor neuron lesion. Uh, you can do things like cutting, you can contuse very low down. And that can be like a lower motor neuron lesion, like spinal bifida. And if you go higher up, like a T6, for example, you can get autonomic dysreflexia, which has cardiovascular implications. But I think the important things that we wanted to mention, since, since the complex pathophysiology of spinal cord injury isn't static, and it evolves over time, it's not available to the traditional one drug treats all. And so we discussed therapeutic potentials of three small molecules. And these drugs are given at different time points. Uh, for example, the first drug we talk about is LM11A-31. That compound was uh, developed by Frank Longo. Uh, and, but the compound has been in clinical trials. And it's given very early on. What it does is it binds to P75 neurotropin receptors. And typically, it'll bind to a receptor that's linked to TREK channel or TREK receptors. I don't want to get into too much of this, like TREK, B, and C. But it will typically bind to that. And the way it is that proneurotrophins are made intracellularly, they're stored in vesicles, and then they're hydrolyzed to mature form before they're released. But in pathology, what happens is that the upregulation of these proneurotrophins is so rapid uh, that they can't be uh, metabolized that quickly or hydrolyzed. And so the proneurotrophins bind to a P75 receptor that promotes uh, apoptosis. And so this has a problem in that it causes spinal cord damage. It's sort of a recapitulation of what happens early on in neonatal development. Oh, when nerves are developing, this mechanism is involved in pruning them out. And so when it does come up, though, it causes a lot of problems. And so it would be nice to give something to prevent this. And ideally, you would want to give it early on. So for example, when these proneurotrophins surge, it's usually like over a day or a day and a half. And I know that's very tough to try to get a drug to somebody that quick, but they always talk in spinal cord injury about the golden hour. If you can get a person very early on, you could make their prognosis for rehabilitation much better. So in any event, this drug would be given very early on, if possible. So when we gave it, we gave it the day after contusion. But then the second drug we have is LM20. So this is another uh, drug. It's LM22B-10. This drug is actually in clinical trials for treating Alzheimer's disease. But it's effective in that what it does, it simulates, again, P75 receptors, but they're receptors that are linked to TREK receptors. And what they do is they promote neuronal development. And so it's very positive. And so this drug can be given pretty much at any time. But it's if you can block the neurodegeneration and promote growth, it can help the outcome of the spinal cord. And then the last drug that we're using, uh, it's it's called Sinasaquad. It's a it's a essentially it's a soluble guanylate cyclase activator. Uh, they're relatively new. They've been around for a number of years. One problem they had with those was they used them in clinical trials to treat acute heart failure. When they gave these drugs, they gave them by IV infusion and they gave them a set amount. When you give these, when you give something like uh, sinasaquat, what it does is it, well, let me back up. If you go back to soluble guanate cyclase, nitric oxide binds to soluble guanate cyclase. It has a heme group on it. The heme needs to be in a reduced form, an Fe2 plus. When it does it, when it does bind, then what you get is conversion of GTP to cyclic GM. And cyclic GMP goes on to upregulate PKG. And that phosphorylates a number of proteins, but in the end result, it promotes vasodilatation. That's the way that nitric oxide works in the vasculature. It's in vascular endothelial cells, 
it's produced, it's produced, it's never stored, but it's produced, it can go into the blood vessel stream of a luma, but it can go ablumly to the business end where it stimulates muscle and relaxes it. So the point with this drug is that when you have pathological situations, what happens is there's an, and let me be clear with this. So there's an enzyme, CYB5R3, it's a reductase, that keeps the heme group on this nitric oxide synthase reduced. And when it is reduced, a nitric oxide can interact with it. The trouble is the pathologies cause to inhibit this enzyme. What happens, the hemes fall off and it no longer responds to nitric oxide. The nice thing about sobriguanate cyclase activators are that they're a heme mimetic. They're still small molecules, but they'll stimulate this, if you would, oxidized or heme-free form to, produ to produce cyclic GNP. And so, and the nice thing about it also is that if you have normal, if you have nitric oxide synthase that's, or nit I'm sorry, if you have sobriguanate cyclase that's not oxidized, then it has no effect. So if you were to give this systemically, it shouldn't have effects on blood pressure unless one were, for example, had you know cardiovascular pathology. And so that's one of the key features of that drug. The only caveat would be you wouldn't want to give that early on because when you have spinal cord injury, these patients tend to have very low blood pressures. And so this should be given after that, after they're stabilized and after triage. And so that's the basis of this talk. And, and again, I think it's the important point is that there aren't many treatments for spinal cord injury, but particularly there aren't many treatments for spinal cord injury due to or tract dysfunction. It's the typical things of doing, again, clean intermittent catheterization, anti-muscarinic agents, and they're palliative at best. They're not really very effective. Yeah, and I think your course, the workshop would be ideal for both clinicians who treat this because it's very difficult to manage and treat patients with spinal cord injury and um, subsequent urinary incontinence, um, retention, the things that we, that we see with these patients. And so from a clinical perspective, it can be really, the workshop sounds really fascinating for clinicians, but also has a translational aspect that you talked about where you can really mm -hmm. understand the pathophysiology and of these novel treatments and how they actually can work um, to, to kind of sort of treat um, and combat some of these things that we see. So that I, I think that this workshop, even though it sounds like it's very, you know, would be more for the basic scientists actually has a lot of application to the clinicians and the nurse practitioners and the physical therapists, the nurses that take care of these patients. Um, so well, for I, example, I don't know uh, if I'm running over here and this is no, 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 we have time. So for example, if you're treating erectile dysfunction, they typically treat it with PD-5 inhibitors. So PD-5 inhibitors take, again, cyclic GMP and break it down. So these agents like sildenafil, tadalafil, vardenafil, what they are are structural analogs of cyclic GMP. And so if you have sildenafil around, it will limit the, you know, the derivation of cyclic GMP. The trouble is if you're not producing any, if you have nectergic nerve damage, then these agents aren't effective. And so it would be quite useful in a case like that. So if somebody is, you know, not is refractory to PD5 inhibitors to give them a cyberguanate cyclase activator. And then like this case they had with when they were treating acute heart failure and they had this large upregulation in, in PD5. Uh, what's nice about that, that you could give a PD5 inhibitor and that would mean you might not have to increase the dose, for example, of cyclic rather sorry we're going cycle. So I'm not trying to make this sound confusing. It's really it's really quite a simple thing if you can throw up slides and show it. But I think there's some important ramifications here for treating spinal cord injury rather than just doing the typical things that you hear every year over and over again. I agree. I certainly think that um in this particular area um of you know of our field it's it's so challenging to work with these patients and offer them treatment strategies and um, to, to have something like this where these, these novel drugs and we can learn more about them and potentially 
you know, kind of um, just like you were doing brainstorm other applications for them, I think is a, a would be, is going to be a really um, important and also exciting part of your workshop. So um, we certainly look forward to that. And any, any other last thoughts before, uh, um, well, again, these agents have, you know, just these agents have other features. For example, one of the features of cyberbolomics like this is that it decreases fibrosis. It not only limits collagen deposition, but it also increases or inhibits matrix metalloprotein. What it does is it essentially removes fibrosis. And so one of the problems with spinal cord injuries, you can become, you know, you can get a fibrotic bladder. And this can be helpful in that case as well. So I think I've talked it enough about this. Yeah. No, it, could, it can be used for for many different areas of, of this field. So it's um, really fascinating. And I'm glad that you were able to come and speak to what the workshop entails. Because I really think they're going to, you know, um, you're going to have a lot of members that are going to find this very applicable to their lot, to their, you know, daily clinical lives, um, as well as, uh, you know, an exciting opportunity for, for new sort of pathways. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and we are so excited to um, see you in September and I'm sure people will be signing up for the workshop soon. So don't forget to, I'm going to say the name of the workshop again, um, just so that you're able to go online and sign up for it. So it's might say workshop 17, but that's okay. Workshop 17, targeting neurotrophin and nitric oxide okay. signaling to promote recovery and ameliorate neurogenic bladder dysfunction following spinal cord injury, the mechanistic concepts and clinical implications. All right. So thank you so much, Dr. Kanai. Mm -hmm. Um, and now we are going to uh, move uh, move on to BPH. So um, similar uh, related, but um, not entirely the same. Um, so Dr. Dean El Elterman um, is going to discuss his workshop, and he is chairing novel BPH therapies, review of male LUTs, technologies, and practical instruction. Um, so Dr. Elterman, can you uh, tell us a little bit about kind of where this workshop came from, um, so the ideas behind it, what you hope that uh, that uh, the attendees will take from it. Sure. So uh, it's a pleasure to join all of the listeners and people who are tuning in for this uh, upcoming ICS uh, meeting in Vienna. And, you know, this workshop really came out of uh, the idea that now more than ever, there are so many different treatments available for male lower urinary tract symptoms, uh, secondary to uh, benign prostate enlargement. And, um, you know, we, my fellow faculty and I thought that this would be a great opportunity to really go over uh, a number of features of male LETs, including, you know, the basic workup diagnosis. Uh, our faculty comes uh, from Europe, uh, Germany, France, uh, Italy, um, and myself from Canada. And so, you know, we have a good exposure to not only the American guidelines, but European guidelines, Canadian guidelines. So we're going to go a little bit over that, but really try and delve into these different technologies that have emerged um, in 2022. So historically, men really only had surgical options. They could either have a open, simple prostatectomy or transurethral surgery. And with the advent of medical therapy, that really opened up uh, the possibility of other types of treatments. And we've now gone into almost like this third phase of treatments, which are minimally invasive surgical therapies or mists. And these mists and other adaptations of the surgical therapies are really broadening what we can do, who we can treat, where we can treat men, um, and really changes sort of the profile of intervention. And so, you know, we're going to review a number of technologies. These include Resume, which is convective water vapor ablation of the prostate. We're going to talk about uh, some of the new implants. So we have the prostatic urethral lift or urolift system, 
as well as the new iTind, which is the temporary implantable nitinol device. Um, there's a number of new prostate stents that are coming onto the market, and we may talk a little bit about them, though they're investigational. And then uh, we're going to also shift a little bit into the surgical uh, realm and talk about the nucleation of the prostate, which has become very popular, particularly in uh, Europe, um, as a surgical technique. And the most recent um, addition to the BPH portfolio is something called aquablation, which is a ultrasound, uh, real-life imaging, robotic execution, water jet ablation of the prostate. And so we're really going to touch on uh, each of these new technologies. We have a fantastic panel of experts, uh, as I said, international, internationally. And we're going to also make it really quite practical because with all of these options available, it's very difficult to decide now, well, which technology, which treatment should go with which man and which prostate. And so we're really going to try and clarify for the audience of uh, this workshop, not only what are these technologies, what do the guidelines say? What does the evidence say about the technologies, but how can we practically uh, approach the index patient or a couple cases and talk about which technologies, which therapies may be a good option for them? So that's really going to be the, the main core focus of this 90-minute uh, novel technologies in uh, male lower urinary tract symptoms and BPH, and we hope that we'll be able to, uh, to have lots of people join us. That sounds fascinating. And I know that um, with these new technologies that have come out, and we haven't really had an, an in-person discussion of them for the last couple of years because there hasn't been an in-person meeting. And so, I'm, you know, uh, there'll be people chomping at the bit to, to get into your course. Now, what do, you, what do you say for perhaps the trainees who might be a little bit intimidated about these novel therapies? Do you think it would be a good course for, for trainees to, to be interested in, in this workshop? Or do you think, um, um, do you think they'd be able to uh, sort of take something from, from your workshop? Yeah, I mean, I think we're really going to approach this workshop from the bottom up. We're going to talk about uh, not only the guidelines and the evidence base to support each of these uh, technologies, but also a decision-making platform. And unfortunately for many trainees, not all of these technologies are offered where they train. And so this is going to be a really unique opportunity for um, anyone from a medical student, a resident, a fellow, all the way to someone in practice to really have the opportunity to sit down and talk to you know, five uh, international experts who have firsthand experience with all of these different types of therapies and will be able to go over it in a very practical way so they can, they can learn how to employ it in their, uh, in their practices. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. And um, especially with the, you know, all of the uh, panelists from um, an international background coming from different areas, they can speak to their experiences. Um, I think that uh, just what you said, anyone from a medical student to someone who's been in practice for a long time is going to get a lot out of that course. Um, and so we really look forward to um, uh, to seeing you in September in Vienna and look forward to, to, to joining in on these workshops. Um, any last parting thoughts, um, Dr. Elterman, before um, we, we end our podcast here? Well, I'll definitely just put in a final plug to uh, check out <laughs> workshop number eight, Novel BPH Therapies. I think this is going to be a really dynamic, exciting uh, program. The speakers uh, are just phenomenal, uh, again, from all across Europe. And I think they're going to give a really unique perspective uh, first-hand uh, perspective on these uh, therapies and make it not only interesting, uh, but also very practical as well. 
Awesome. Well, I just wanted to thank both of you so much, Dr. Kanai and Dr. Elgerman, for coming in and chatting to me today about the workshops coming up in September. Um, and I know that all of our members um, and the ICS staff and uh, all the committee members, myself included, are really excited for um, for you know an in-person conference and for us all to, to meet together in Vienna and have um, a really great discussion as well as some really great times. So thank you so much and uh, we will see you in September. International Continent Society podcast. Find out more about the leading organization in multidisciplinary continents research and education at ics.org.